last Sunday, our focus was on how we have gotten to the sad state of affairs that we now find ourselves in. And seeing that the fundamental problem, that when all else is sorted out, the fundamental problem is idolatry. And you might remember that last Sunday as I brought my sermon to a conclusion, I returned to how I began and pointed out that the fundamental problem is with us, with humanity. And it's with our attempt to replace God. That's the root problem. And idolatry, which biblically speaking even is greed, there is a verse that says, where Paul says greed, and then parenthetically says, which is idolatry? Idolatry breeds immorality. Because when we replace God, there are no barriers, there, there are no items to help us when we focus on what we want and what we feel and what we think we need and we eliminate the vertical dimension then we become those sheep that are wandering aimlessly while others had discussed the idea in 1882 a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche published a collection of essays and one of those essays included the phrase, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Nietzsche used that phrase to express the idea that the Enlightenment had eliminated the need, even the possibility of the existence of God. But interestingly, Nietzsche recognized that the crisis that the death of God represented was a crisis for moral assumptions as well in Europe as they existed within the context of traditional Christian beliefs. One writer has said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. By breaking one main concept out of Christianity, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. And nothing necessary remains in one hand, one's hands. So in 1880-ish, Nietzsche said, God is dead. What were the consequences? The consequences were that the 19th and the 20th centuries were the bloodiest centuries known to mankind. And as we continue to see God being replaced we also continue to see the consequences that that's causing. And we can't allow ourselves to be fooled. Idolatry is not an ancient problem. And I believe that the number one idol of our day, if it's not the almighty dollar, the number one idol of our day is the unholy trinity. Me, 
myself and I. I shared with a group that came out for a Bible study on Wednesday night that the possibility of saving oneself by means of self-help books is one of the major delusions of the New Age philosophy and thinking today. Bookstores just have shelf after shelf after shelf of books that are purportedly there to help you solve any problem. Are things getting better? No. No, because we can't help ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. They believe falsely that salvation is from within as we discover ourselves and our own resources. But the reality is, is that salvation really comes from outside ourselves. That someone else came and is coming again for our rescue, namely our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For example, how about good old Shirley MacLaine? She urged people to look into yourself, to explore yourself, because all the answers are within yourself. And in a book she wrote called Going Within, she actually writes that the new age is about self-responsibility. Taking responsibility for everything that happens since the only source is ourselves. How ridiculous. You see, we're a very self-centered, pleasure-seeking culture. It's about me. It's about what I want. And our focus on our own wants and our needs is one of Satan's best tools. Clinically speaking, I don't know. I've probably shared this with most of you, but a part of my very first master's degree, um, I did 400 hours of clinical work in an acute psychiatric ward. Uh, two units of pastoral clinical counseling. And I'll never forget Dr. Chutko, one of the things he said, you want to know how sick a person is? Then when they're talking, you just make a mark every time they say me, myself, or I. And the more times they refer to themselves, the sicker they are mentally. You see, we don't think about idolatry in those ways. But we need to continually remind ourselves that anything that in any way takes the place of God in our lives, anything that you serve, that you love, that you trust, more than you serve, love, and trust God, is an idol. I pointed out how G.K. Chesterton said that when people stop believing in God, it's not that they don't believe in, that they believe in nothing. It's that they believe in anything. So a good question might be, how do we know? How do we know when we have replaced God with a God of our own making? In the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded that three times Jesus says that the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is fruit. 
and the distinguishing characteristic of a non-Christian is fruit. Good fruit says Christian. Bad fruit says not Christian. And both Paul and James say the same thing. John Stott, in fact, I've quoted him, I'm behind. John Stott said, The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. You want to know if you're living the life God wants you to live? Start keeping a record of how much you're serving others instead of expecting them to serve you. What did Jesus say in terms of the commandments? The most important commandment is to love God with yeah, the totality of our beating. But then what do you say next? The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, or excuse me, James says, James chapter 2 verse 18, Show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Galatians 5, 6, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith working through love. You hear that? Paul's just concluded the first chapter of Romans with an important description of the unrighteous. He said, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh, it's okay. That's just what they believe. That's not what I believe, but that's what they believe. It's okay. No, it's not okay. If it contradicts the Word of God, it's not okay. It doesn't matter what you feel. It really doesn't matter what you think unless your thinking concurs with what this book says. We haven't produced a new morality. We've just produced a new way to excuse our old immorality. And that brings us to the dilemma of chapter 2. Our text is going to begin today with that noteworthy word, therefore. And that should alert us to the idea that something's about to be said directly related to what's preceded. I'll be the first to agree that it's not really clear exactly how the previous section The previous context in and of itself logically produces what Paul says in these verses or summary. But that being said, when Paul begins in this way, he must be assuming not only the content of those verses that we looked at last week, but also the attitude of judgment in the hearts of the Jews whom he's addressing. And the dilemma is that his readers... Those who are hearing this letter read in some way agree with what he's saying about the Gentiles and some of them are probably looking at the Gentiles and saying, oh, you're getting what you deserve. And so Paul wants them to know they have no excuse 
Which, by the way, is what I've titled my message for today. Without excuse. They are without excuse because, and therefore we're without excuse, we're, do, we're guilty of doing some of the same things that we point our fingers at others for doing. So let's look at our text for this morning. It's a short one. Cindy told me to do a sermon that I can't do it. You know me better than that, don't you? Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll somehow escape the judgment of God? Or... Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Before we begin to dig into the text that we've just read, again this week, I want us to consider an image. If you're in the back and you can't see it clearly, she's in a wheelchair. But in the mirror, she sees herself as a ballerina dancing. Is it fair to assume that we don't see ourselves in the same way that others see us? How accurate are we when we engage in a bit of healthy introspection, self-examination? You see, one of the things, one of the first things that we should have noticed is that this is another passage about judging others. And I often hear people say, the Bible says you should not judge others. Really? If that's the case, then would you please help me understand the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7? You see, Matthew 7 does begin, judge not that you be not judged, but it's not a prohibition against judging. Jesus is saying that we shouldn't judge others by a measure that we're not willing to be judged by ourselves. In fact, and I can see those people, especially the little kids, man, they're probably slapping their leg and saying, ah, oh, Jesus, he's such a funny man. But you remember what he said? You're worried about a speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye and you've got this big beam sticking out of your own eye. Go take care of the beam in your own eye. But then, he doesn't say don't worry about the speck. He doesn't say don't judge. He says once you take care of your own problems, your own beam, then you can see clearly 
to help that person deal with that speck in their eye. Later in verses 15 to 20 of that same teaching, part of the Sermon on the Mount, the the paracope begins, Beware of false teachers. You'll recognize them by their fruits. And it concludes with, Thus you'll recognize them by their faults. That, my friends, involves not just discernment, but it involves judgment. And since fruit has to do with behavior, then the judgment that's being talked about is between good fruit and bad fruit, between good behavior and bad behavior. Remember the story uh, when Jesus had the woman who was caught in the act of adultery brought to him? Obviously a trap. Because the man had to be there too if she was caught in the act. Jesus didn't condemn her. He doodled in the ground. Wouldn't you like to know what that was? Maybe a word? And somebody said, Oh, that's me. Or a little stick figure and a drawing of a tree. And somebody says, Oh, I was there. He says, let the one of you that's without sin cast the first stone. Because the person who caught somebody doing something that was deserving of death, stoning by death, that person was the one that was supposed to be the one that threw the first stone. And then the others would join in. Let the one among you that's without sin cast the first stone. They all left. But, Jesus said, go and sin no more. He didn't condone her behavior. No, he didn't condemn her, but he did confront her with the fact that she was living a sinful lifestyle. And by living that sinful lifestyle, she was bringing destruction and negative consequences upon herself. You see, The teaching about judging in the New Testament is, yes, by all means, help your brother who has a fault, but do it, one, fairly, two, lovingly, and three, privately. And I think in the first verse of our text this morning, I think that one of the first things that he's saying there is that our judgment of others reveals our own character. Paul uncovers an all too common weakness, human weakness. And namely, that is our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. You've probably seen the same thing that I've seen. Someone who manages to work themselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of others. While the same behavior or sometimes something even worse 
seems not quite as serious because it involves themselves. We even gain satisfaction sometimes by condemning others. Uh, the very faults that we excuse in ourselves. Sigmund Freud referred to that gymnastic, mental gymnastic as projection. We put what we're doing on others so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's a way that we can simultaneously retain our sins, but also try to retain our self-respect. And one commentator said it's a convenient arrangement, but it's also slick and sick. That's why Paul goes on to argue that in judging others, we must know that we ourselves, we're exposing ourselves to the judgment of God. We leave ourselves without either excuse, he says, or without escape. And Paul's point is that our critical reasoning faculties are so well developed that we've become experts in our moral evaluation of others and so we can hardly plead ignorance of our own feelings. Let me point to one other important fact. The word that he uses there for past judgment Krino in the Greek. It should be translated condemn in terms of our common usages. Because it's not just about thinking and discerning and thinking and evaluating. It's about putting your nose up and your pointy little finger out and saying negative things about those other people. And as I said before, our place is not to condone sinful behavior by any stretch of the imagination. But it's not to condemn. It's to go help lift up, to restore. And that leads to my second point. And that is, is that God's judgment is revealed in the present tense. I've shared with you before The statistics, the statistics, not church statistics, the statistics indicate that those of us, myself included, who have been through a divorce have raised the risk of our children being delinquent behaviorally. We've raised the risk of them also having failures in their marriages. We've raised the risk of having multiple divorces once we have that first one. Those are just government statistics. Because that judgment of our sinful behavior falls back on ourselves. In the present tense. Remember... If not, we'll get there. Romans 3.23 Who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All. 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 And so, the only way I can help somebody is not by pointing my finger. It's by wrapping my arms around. I had the opportunity last night at the reunion to say a few words before I said the prayer for the meal. 
And I gave a list of 10 people who made significant contributions once they were over the age of 65. My class right now is basically, give or take a few months, 69 years of age. Ten people that have done amazing things after the age of 65. But I had them do one other thing. I said, would all of you who have been on the same job for over 25 years, raise your hand. Would all of you who have gotten a college degree raise your hands? Would all of you that have gotten a graduate degree raise your hands? And then I said, I don't want you to raise your hands now. But what about all of you who have been divorced? What about all of you who have been addicted in one way or another to something? I said, now think about it. How many years of accumulated wisdom do we have sitting right here in that group of people that were predominantly 69 years of age? Hayden Shaw, whose father was Wayne Shaw, who was at Lincoln Christian Seminary for many, many years. Hayden has become a guru in inter- generational studies, has written books, has travels all over speaking in that area. Elderly people, right now the statistics say that young people who are in their later teens and early 20s are willing to sit down and listen to senior citizens if we won't be judgmental. They want to hear. They want to learn. That's not my opinion. That's what he has seen from statistics and studies and surveys that they've done. Sometimes we forget that we have a history of things if we have learned from our mistakes. We have a history of consequences by which we can help others. Because we are feeling the pain of that discipline that God brings. And that's going to lead me to my final point, which is verse 5. There is such a thing as God's judgment. And it will be revealed in the end times also. There is a, a not yet aspect. There is a yet. There is a now there is a now. We experience the consequences of our failures, our bad choices. But there is a not yet aspect of it too. Sometimes, sometimes we want to focus so much on the fact that God is love. And He is love. But just because God is love doesn't mean it actually especially means that God is going to be just.
We're going to continue in chapter 2 actually for the next three weeks. And we're going to see that develop. That the judge will be God. Specifically God the Son, Jesus Christ, chapter 2 verse 16. And He can and will judge according to truth, He says, because He knows all things, including the very thoughts of our hearts. And right here in verse 5, we see that this is possible because Jesus is righteous and thus meticulously fair. And the standard by which He will judge is His own law, which is known to all, either through general revelation or through special revelation. Those verses that we went through in chapter 1? It's self-evident, he says. You know, I was on a police department. Our homicide detectives told me themselves that when they come on the scene of a homosexual murder they know it within minutes of being on the scene how stabbing is one of the predominant means of murder among same sex relationships and instead of stabbing once or twice they will stab the body 20, 30, 40 times. Because there is an inbred deep rage that is there. Next Sunday we're going to pick up on how the deeds that we do are going to be judged as exhaustively observed and infallibly remembered by the omniscient, all-knowing God, who's going to compare them objectively with the righteous standard and then reward us accordingly, which he says right here in verse 6. But you see, verse 4 has implied what verse 5 now declares. That the unrepentant state of our hearts is what causes us the problem. Refusal to repent can be explained in two ways, Paul says. Either a person believes they don't need to repent because they believe God will show them partiality or they're guilty of rejecting God. One of those two things. We used the image of treasure the last few weeks. And isn't it interesting that here Paul says that the treasure we're laying up for ourselves is not something positive, but it's wrath? Paul hasn't pulled any punches in this paragraph. He says some very harsh things, but remember that he's not motivated by unkindness. He's not gloating. He's motivated by love. So here's my challenge. It's actually verse 4, but it's from Eugene Peterson's version called The Message. Taken directly from our text, let's take time this week to mend broken relationships. Let's be willing to change. Let's be willing to be different. Let's be willing to repent of wrongs, to say 
I'm sorry. If you don't forgive somebody, who does it hurt? Does it hurt them? No. They just go on living their lives. You're the one stuck with the pain. And when we forgive them, they might not change. Probably won't in most cases. But we won't recover. We won't recover till we forgive and move on. Let it go. And so in the message version, he says, God's kind, but He's not soft. In kindness, He takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us. Because we have made what we want into our gods. We have made our own standard into our God instead of Your Word. So help us to seek what is right, to do what is right, and to be willing to pay the consequences and learn when we choose to do what is not right. Thank You for Your forgiveness and Your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.